The scripture for this morning is back in Philippians chapter two, which you can find on page 1785 in the Pew Bible. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. <clears throat> Thanks, Sharon. A couple things really quick before we get going on this passage. I do want to encourage you that what they said about blessed is super important, um, of like loving other people is partly delighting in them. One of the things that we're going to struggle with as believers in a culture of affirmation without moral seriousness in broad things is that we're going to end up disadvantaged in loving relationships with other people because we have a worldview that has any kind of moral standards. And so because of that, people who just want blanket affirmation are going to see people who just give affirmation, which is really vanity and flattery, as being more loving naturally. And so we, we've got to be especially gracious and loving because if we're going to also live in a morally serious way, we need to overcome that structural disadvantage relative to people's good feelings and receiving good feelings from us. So our graciousness, our compassion, our love, and therefore our sacrificial service of others has to be well beyond. Because I'll just tell you, it's been heartbreaking the moments where I've had people in my office say, you know, I'm real, part of the reason I'm struggling is because at my workplace or in my office or in this place, or it's my, really my secular gay friends that are really the most loving people in my life, not the church. And it, it's hard for me. And it just breaks my heart as a pastor. So that's the negative affirmation of what Nathan said positively. <clears throat> and I just, I really believe that though um, law and grace together make the gospel— um, we have to show the grace all the more, um, especially because believing in moral seriousness can make us curbudgeonly when nobody pays attention to any of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? When, like, you have a, a worldview that has a moral and spiritual center, and then nobody does what you believe God wants, it's like everybody is on your yard and you're 85 years old. You know what I mean? And it just will make you curmudgeonly, and you have to, like, get over that. Does that make sense? To love others. That'll be—I'll preach that whole sermon another time. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the Robert Marx things, the first one's going to be particularly being a Christian within a, a highly secularized vocation. This is specifically focused on university people, doctors, people in the medical field. It, like, especially if you're a field that just feels like you can't even breathe a word of you belong to Jesus. How do you navigate that? And Marx is going to talk about that, I think, really well. And part of the limits of AI that he'll talk about in the evening is about the mystery of human consciousness and God's, like, God's glory in creating the human person in his image— and how that contrasts with our ability to create computers in our image and the creation of artificial intelligence. Does that make sense? So even if you're not like a programmer, 
Like, I, I really think that, like, invite your smart friend who thinks ch- church is too dumb. That's really the purpose of this event. Invite your smart friends who thinks that church is for stupid people to that event so that they can hear an incredibly intelligent professor talk about AI. Because sometimes just breaking up that bigotry will begin to lead them to Christ. Do you understand? That's part of why we have events like that. Because church is not designed for people with IQs over 120. Okay. Um, let's dive in. Oh, yeah. The clothing drive, briefly. Um, sorry if that hurts some of these people. Um, the, the church has to be for everybody, so it can't be designed for the elites, right? So we got to have some things where that can— Okay. So I'm um, just trying to get my foot out of my mouth before. Okay. Uh, the, the clothing drive is a driver doing in conjunction with End Times Ministries. End Times Ministries is a strange name for a great church. They're on the west side of town. Uh, they're led by uh, Pastor, Pastor Bishop Apostle Godfrey Stubbs. He's a Baptocostal, and um, their church is doing really great stuff. And this is one opportunity for us to like partner with them, meet people at their church, kind of get connected to them. I, I had dinner with him and his wife. They were at our house till 11.35-ish. And it was, we had a great time. So, uh, so, so being part of that clothing drive is part of a, a, a partnership act that I think we're going to be doing as a church coming up. That's part of our multi-ethnic work. And you're going to hear more about that hopefully in the coming weeks. Okay, let's go. All that stuff's important. We're taking ground, yo. Let's do it. Do some good things. Okay. Um, Most people would tell you, if you say, like, what do you want to get out of life? What do you hope in your life is going to be about? Young people, old people, everybody peoples, right? Most people will say something like, well, I want my life to be happy and meaningful, right? Like, who doesn't want that? And people want to be happy. Most people just don't want to be miserable. And people want their life to be meaningful. They want their life to mean something. Okay, great. What does that even mean? Like, is there only one kind of happiness? Is it just like in a, like a, ha- like a generally happy state? Is that what happiness is? And is that compatible with meaning, right? Because there's, there's some kind of happinesses that aren't really rooted in meaning. And so happiness and meaning can be pitted against each other, especially in a culture like ours. There was this thought experiment often done in early, um, in like the first philosophy class you take in college, and it was about ethics. And they say, okay, think about this ethically. Imagine that I could give you a pill. If you took this pill— it would make you maximally happy for 16 hours. And then at the end of 16 hours, you'd be able to fall asleep and sleep normally. Then you wake up again, and you could take the pill again. However, when you take the pill, it also physically incapacitates you for 16 hours. You can't do anything. Okay? But you, are ma- you feel maximally happy for 16 hours. Right? Would you take the pill for the rest of your life? Right? Now, there are some people that are sufficiently depressed. Right? They would be like, you know what? Yes. <laughs> okay? Or like if you have young children, maybe. But like for most people, for most people, they would say, you know, that's tempting, but no. Because I wouldn't be able to do anything. And you're like, well, why do you want to do those things? Don't you do those things because you want to be happy? And they're like, well, I mean, I guess not. I guess I do those things because they matter too. Right? Because what people really want is to be happy whilst doing something meaningful. In fact, it turns out when you look at the most descriptive ways people tend to feel happy, it's when they do things that are meaningful, right? Most stable long-term human happiness comes from like four things. I probably can't call them up all right now in my head, but one is like doing something that matters to other people as a vocation, right? You do it and it matters to other people, right? Two, you have a people that are your people. They feel like family, right? 
Three, you have people you are able to call friends, and you think they call you friend, and they would be there for you if you needed them, right? And I think the fourth one is, is that you have a worldview that explains the meaning of existence and makes sense of suffering, right? Which means, partly, that you know the actions of your life are meaningful before God, and that even your suffering is meaningful. You see, all four of those connect you to either interpersonal or metaphysical relational meaning in the universe. And all of those, when they're operating in people's lives, when those four things are operating in people's lives, people are the most naturally and reliably happy. Have you noticed that it has, has virtually no relationship to income? There are some incomes that if you get below them, they tend to decrease happiness. Like if you make less than $4 a day globally, that tends to decrease your happiness. But once you get past, like you've got food and a little bit of medicine, you can put clothes on your back, it's, it's just not very indicative of it, right? Now, most people hate Her Herbert Marcuse's guts. I also hate Herbert Marcuse's guts, right? He's a neo-Marxist. But one of the—the thing about Marxists is they're basically wrong on every solution, but they're right about a lot of the problems that need to be solved. And one of Marcuse's problems, he said, how do we shake people not out of submitting to the bourgeoisie? But how do we shake people out of being a, quote, one-dimensional man? What did he mean by that? One-dimensional man. This is in the 1960s. From 1950 to 1960, Americans increased their income by more than 45%, and they spent more than 100% more on consumable goods than they ever had in the history of the entire world. We became consumers in 12 years. Right? Some of you are probably old enough to remember what life was like before that. When, like, women literally washed clothes without machines. It wasn't that long ago. And then overnight, we bought stuff to make us happy. And it's still happening now, except it's turned into a virtual purchase of happiness that comes right into your face all the time and is now becoming alternately virtual. I know churches now that are having church in the metaverse. Right? We're working on my avatar right now. It's going to be kind of like a centaur, but with a bow tie. I'm just kidding. All right. You see, that idea that Marcuse is bringing forth demonstrated that he and Timon from the Lion King had the same basic philosophy on that, right? That like happiness and meaning could get separated. Marcuse wasn't as happy as Timon with that. He knew meaning had to be involved. Jesus preceded him by a lot. In this passage, though, what the Apostle Paul is saying is the opposite of happy and meaningful is what he already talked about in the first three verses. Strife and vanity. Where we value things in seeking meaning that aren't valuable, and we try to produce happiness in ways that are sufficiently selfish that we harm each other and produce injustice, which leads to strife. Now, I submit to you, look around at our culture. Do we pursue vain things as though they're meaningful? Are we consumeristic in the wrong sense? And are we seeking attention, social media, in the wrong ways? I would argue that's present, you know? And then secondly, are we doing these things in such a way as to break down the most harmonious and loving shared life we can have together in which our social lives produce meaning for us because we have friends and family and religious belonging and the sort of things that make us happy because we're connected with others? I would argue that is also present. Maybe more than present, right? The apostle is right because he's speaking for God that we very easily, if we don't understand what is meaningful 
and what produces joy, we will find ourselves pursuing them in other ways than the ways that move usually through the path of suffering towards the unseen hidden God, towards ultimate happiness and glorification. We will always choose another path than sorrow and suffering. And sacrifice, which is always bound up, at least possibly, in any risk, but doing almost anything meaningful in a fallen world where people behave badly includes risk. Right? So, one way you could say what the Apostle is saying in this passage is this. Our boast, that is, our expression of the meaningfulness of our lives, and our joy, stable happiness— oops, that doesn't work now— is, is in our participation in each other's faith. That's what he's saying in this passage. Our, shoot, our boast and our joy is in our participation in each other's faith. If you move to a, one of the verses uh, in chapter 1, which says, I'm hoping to come to you. If they don't kill me, I'm hoping to come to you to do something for the, your joy and progress. Do you see how that's very similar? Your happiness and progress in sanctification, in holiness, in love, in growth and persevering faith, right? I'm hoping to affect that. Why? Because that's what's meaningful. So I'm going to come to you, and, and the result of me coming to you is your happiness and meaning, your joy and progress in the faith. And the result of that is, is that all together, we're going to make it in the faith, believing together, living a life of love, connected to one another, serving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, caring about our neighbor, even if our neighbor can also be labeled enemy. We're going to make it together, and that's what matters. Right? And all of that glorifies God. And so that's what I'm living for. And so his participation in their persevering faith is at the heart of what he finds meaningful and what fills him with joy. And he's telling them, that's what you should find meaningful and which should fill you with joy. Okay, now I'm going to break this down into 24 parts so we get it clearly. <laughs> He'll be more like three. Preach is special. Okay, the first is, I feel like I should— Do you know how they always give you like three tacos now? It's like somehow the perfect number. Okay, so one— there's, have you heard the story that they told Ronald Reagan when he went to the ambassador of Turkey about public speaking? They said, in Turkey, people will only hear like three things. You have to tell three messages and you got to be done. And they're like, oh, really? Yeah. He's like, because that's the whole human race. The human mind can hold about three things and then it's done. So apparently that's the thing. Okay. That was a communications professor from somewhere. Said it to him. Okay. Anyway. Um, there's a way to boast beautifully. There is a way to boast beautifully. Okay? The word boast is in the Bible many times. In modern English, we have changed its meaning to be primarily a pejorative word. If you go to the dictionary even now, though, the pejorative definition comes first. Like, it's excessive, prideful, self-aggrandizing talk, right? And then it says, statement about one's success or something. It's like like a morally neutral one, right? Because I um, think—so in this, it's very easy to read over, right? He says, The reason he wants them to be like stars in the universe, shining lights in the world, he says, as you hold to the word of life, meaning as you persevere in persevering faith. Remember I just said that? As you're holding this to faith in persevering through it, he says, in order that— you see what he's saying? In order that. Do you know what that means? His whole hope in that thing is so something else will happen. Right? He's saying, that's significant for you and for the world, but you know why it's significant for me? He's saying, it's significant for me— so that on the day of Christ, the day of judgment, when I stand before Jesus, I'm going to get to boast that I was part of you. That's my boast. I am, and I'm going to boast, and I'm looking forward to boasting. And it, I'm, this is what I'm holding on to. I'm in prison, like rotting, freezing, whatever, 
and what I'm holding on to in my heart is that when I stand before Jesus, I'm going to get to say, I did this. And Jesus isn't going to say, no, you didn't, you sinner. He's going to say, yes, you did. Right? Yes, you did. And that's not impious in Paul's mind. That is glorious. That is how he should feel. It's how he must feel. And I'm telling you that if you want to have the courage to do what's beautiful, if you want to have what the old saints call divine resignation, the willingness to submit yourself to the will of God in any circumstance in your life, ready to do what's good out of joy, knowing that you have an eternal boast in that thing, you have to believe this. Now, you might be like, okay, but like boasting, right? Like boasting is bad. Like even the Bible treats boasting like it's bad, and that's true. Right? Like in the Bible, um, there are a number of places where the word boasting is used, and it's clearly very, very bad. Okay? So, for example, in, um, in, uh, in Esther 5.11, that's Haman boasting. It says, in his sons, his wealth, and his honor. And then he says, but it doesn't feel like anything if I can't kill Mordecai. Right? Who's the Jewish guy who he doesn't like. Ironically, that's all the things he loses when he gets, up, gets hanged in the end, when he loses his honor for trying to kill a good man. Right? And in the, the Psalms, there are, the, there are these places where the psalmist says, God, please do something about the wicked, those who boast out of the passions of their own hearts, who help the wicked and they trample on the poor, right? They, they boast, right? They're, that is, they're arrogant and they talk like they're arrogant, right? But then there's other places where somebody boasts in their vindication and it's considered very positive. So in Psalm 34, 1, there's these, there are these, a number of verses where David talks about his vindication in the Lord, that God is vindicating him. God is saving him. God is helping him. And he is winning. David is winning, right? In Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, <coughs> there's this woman named Hannah. She's married to a man who has two wives, and the other wife has had a bunch of children. And of course, that was your vindication as a woman in that time period, that you had offspring in a line, and you'd provided that for your husband. Surely he'll like you more because you've had more kids, Right? And so this woman, this woman Penina, would like make fun of Hannah and like poke fun at her for being infertile. And so she finally ends up praying and God does this miraculous thing so that she has this child, Samuel, right? And when she finds out she's pregnant, she sings this song of her vindication, which includes her saying, I, I, you have made me able to boast over my enemies, mainly being her husband's other wife <laughs> and her children, because they were crushing her down and stomping on her face and pushing them under them because they were boasting arrogantly and what they hadn't deserved. Penina didn't deserve her fertility. She just had it, and it put her in a better place, and she should have been thankful to God and humbly boasted to God, saying, God, thank you that you've given me this gift, but it shouldn't have costed Hannah anything. The minute she turned and made it about Hannah and and she had to step on her head to feel better about herself and her boasting. It became the evil kind of boast. Hannah didn't want to kill the other lady. She just wanted to be vindicated from her shame. And she knew that God had done it. And that was her boast, right? And when Mary is carrying Jesus the Christ as this poor girl from who knows where, Nazareth, a place where people said, can anything good come out of there? That doesn't just refer to Jesus, it refers to Mary too, right? And she says, the Lord has done great things for me. He's lifted up his horn of salvation. That is, he's vindicated me. And he's vindicated the poor. He's vindicated all of the poor of the whole world in me. Because as a poor woman from a place where nothing good comes, he has made me the mother of the Messiah. That's a boast. And it's a good one. Right? Now, 
I basically just covered that. So like a bad boast is right from the earlier verses in this chapter, it's full of selfish ambition and vain, vain conceit. And they're impious. They don't recognize God's place and God's activity. Therefore, if you're boasting in something that's only true for you because of the scarcity that it has in your behavior, that like you won the basketball game or you got the promotion, right? That's really not— when you boast at the cost of others without a neutrality of it and without them ever being your enemy, it's not noble, right? Because God has no favorites. God will punish the wicked and vindicate the righteous. God will give grace to all people, but he doesn't have any interest in that enemy being his enemy. And God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He wants the wicked to be his favorite son. And so anytime we move against how God is actually working in it, our boast becomes immediately impious and a damnable offense, right? Boasts are good when they're worshipful. They're in line with what God is doing. They're truthful. They're not puffing us up with a false self. And they're humble in that sense, even though they're bold, right? Which means this—oh, sorry, before we go on. So in this passage, there's this interesting way that— um, the Apostle Paul uses this particular word, Greek word group. Okay, so there's this word in Greek, kinos, right, which is to empty or for something to be vain or of no value or to be for nothing, right? Um, and that word is used in three different locations in chapter 2. The first is in when it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit, that vanity is that word kinos. It's kinos doxa, right? false glory, vain glory, empty glory. He's like, don't give yourself the empty glory. That's not going to get you the happiness or meaning that you want, right? And then he comes to Jesus. He's like, we should be like Jesus. Jesus is the one who's in his very nature and being God. He emptied himself or he, he became less. He, he, he dropped, and it says basically in his, in his able to claim in his privilege equality with God. Now we, listen, we don't know metaphysically exactly what that all means. What Jesus gave up in the incarnation, he didn't become less than God. He was still God. It seemed like there was some kind of limitation. That's not really the point of this passage. The point of this passage is the prestige that he had as a member of the triune Godhead was diminished in his privileges and his place as the glorious one. He became the servant. It's a hierarchical metaphor that from being the one who is king over everything, the creator himself, he became the very nature of a servant and then was crucified like the worst of criminals at that depth in order to serve all of humanity. It is that hierarchical metaphor that he says, listen, it's actually not going to be position that is going to bring you glory and happiness. The higher I have risen in position in my life, the more responsibility there is, the more gray hairs I get. And the only way out of that is to stop having integrity in what I'm doing and suck in the privileges of my power and stop discharging the responsibilities of my power. And I can't do that without losing my soul. And I can't do that and still please God. So I can't do it. The higher you get, if you are under the constraints of the dignity of God's integrity, it's not easier. It's so much harder. Right? Just look at Bar pictures of Barack Obama before he was president and the color of his hair, and pictures of him after he was president and the color of his hair. Right? It's not, or me in 2010. <laughs> and me, it's, <clears throat> right? And so Paul is saying, listen, actually 
giving up that hierarchical authority, becoming the servant of all, whatever it costs us in terms of sacrifice and suffering and service, is that is the means. We should be like that. We should empty, in that sense, we do want to empty ourselves of that claim to authority that does no one any good, right? And then thirdly, he says, my boast is that I didn't run in vain and labor in vain. Now, most of our translations that say run and labor in vain, it uses the word vain one time, or run and labor for nothing. The apostle actually uses it both times. He says that I didn't run in vain and that I didn't labor in vain. Why? Because he's emphasizing it. Do you see? He, he, I mean, he's like literally writing with a, a feather on woven stuff or maybe parchment, right? Like it's, it, there's no spare words here, you understand? And he writes, I didn't want to run empty or vainly, and I didn't want to labor for nothing, right? You see, we want the course of our life, the story of our life, the way we are to matter, and we want the labor, the energy that we expend, the things that we do, what we consider our vocation and our avocation to matter, to, that, the, that the work actually produces something that lasts. And he's like, that's what I wanted. That's my boast. My boast before Jesus is going to be, I chose to live my life with a certain course and to labor and put my hand to a certain set of things that the results of them, if you combine them with faith, Philippians, would last. That's what I chose to do. And that's what we're choosing to do when we minister to people, when we commit ourselves to friendships, when we have somebody in our life that we have to do more for them than they do for us. And we do it in Jesus' name, right? Jesus, remember Jesus said, it is impossible for you to offer somebody even a cup of cold water in my name and for you to lose your reward. Do you understand? To, to, in Jesus, anything done in his name, truly for him, the way he would want it done, the, the goods that he cares about, everything that we do that is that thing, there is a boast in it. You did not run in vain. You did not labor in vain in that thing. And you see, Paul said, I'm living my whole life to have that boast. That my life wasn't for nothing. But I'm going to tell you something. If we live our lives for getting attention online, if we live our, our lives for the next, like, really great food we can get at that restaurant, and that, like, the, the look at that thing or buy that car that we, we want since we were a kid and get those leather seats and get a little bit nicer house and do the blah, 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 and have, like, all kinds of privacy and close that garage door and not have to invite anybody over and do the, like, and have, like, perfect health care and drink and eat whatever. Like, if that's what we live for, it will be chaos. It will be empty. It will be vain. It will have no accord in eternity. We will have labored and directed the course of our life for nothing. And I don't—listen, I'm not saying that we all don't experience subjective meaning and value in all kinds of worldly things or just things in creation that we touch and feel and enjoy. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to another church, he's like, the things of this world, you need to use them like they're not yours to keep. You need to recognize that they are a passing thing. Right? Solomon says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And he means sexual pleasure in that context. And you should. And it's going to pass. Youth is short. And then it's over. And it's, and you should rejoice. But you should also, in that, he says, right, because of marriage, right, be forming a family and seeking offspring and seeking to love other people and to create a household that represents the kingdom of God in which there is in which Christ is glorified, in which there is true peace, in which he reigns. And all of that is part of it. 
so that even the smaller pleasures that are short and passing things are connected to a greater depth that is not empty, but is a course of life and is a meaning and work of life that matters and will last. And when you do that, all of the lesser things become more joyful, more pleasurable, because they truly do become more meaningful. You could translate it like this, that the Apostle Paul is saying, don't sink empty glory, but, em- but empty, that's, that's not a good spelling of that word, but empty yourself. It's like empty with empathy. <laughs> empty. I like that. I like, that's why Jesus emptied himself, because he—all right, whatever. <laughs> of entitlement, and run and labor for what won't be empty one day on the day of Christ. That's what he's saying, right? Now, what that means is this. What we need to really understand is, is that Every human being has within their heart the desire that is unquenchable to be vindicated, okay? Everybody wants some version of you deserved to exist. Your life mattered. Well done, good and faithful servant. Nobody can—those who God justifies, can anyone—no one can condemn, right? This idea that, like, whatever has happened to you, especially how others have tried to hurt you, right? That is oppression. The opposite of vindication is oppression, right? So that, right? So there's multiple metaphors of salvation, right? One is healing to blessing and and wellness, right? One is damnation morally to justification, being set right morally with God so that we're ordered, right? One is to be separated from God and through justification to be united with God, right? We can keep going here for a while, right? One is, one is, um, slavery to liberation, and part of slavery is oppression unto vindication. Like, you're liberated from the ability of your enemies to step on your neck, right? And listen, if we live for Jesus, like, things are going to happen to us that feel like they shouldn't have happened to us, either in the circumstances of life. Your life shouldn't have gone that way, but it did. And other people are judging you inordinately for that happening. Think about Hannah, right? Like, she didn't make herself infertile. But people took the right to judge her in her infertility, thinking it was a curse of God when it wasn't. Right? Similarly, like, things are going to happen to some of you that you're going to wonder, why is it happening? And other people are judging you for it, and they're going to pretend that they're not, but they are. Right? Like, you're struggling to come out of depression, but but they really do think it's your fault. And Maybe in some portion it is, but maybe in some portion it's not. And they have no ability to judge, and neither do you. The question is, is that are you putting your hand to the right thing? Are you living in the course of pursuing God's grace in your brokenness? Some of you are going to marry with the good intention to be in love the rest of your lives with somebody that you believe you can trust to fight for that too, and you're going to get divorced. And because the church should take divorce and marriage very morally seriously— People are going to judge you because they're not going to adjudicate and their mind's right. And they're not going to trust the elders to make the right decision. And they're going to think that you are a bad person and blah, blah, blah. And, and you, can't t- you can't tell them so they believe what happened in those intimate moments. And when it turned and why it happened, what you couldn't to do and what you tried to do to right it and what didn't work. And your vindication isn't going to come until the day of Christ. Some of you are going to lose your good names at work because you're honest. And another person is going to lie pretending that you're a liar and you're going to get stuck for it. 
I know people who've gone to this church who ended up in prison because an informant for the FBI that they were using stole a bunch of money and it was conducive for the FBI agent to blame it on another person so that they didn't take the hit for their career because their informant stole $4 million. And that man went to prison and it wrecked his family. And it, as far as I can tell, was not his fault. And he may never receive his vindication. I know a person who was a high-level army official and a girl who was struggling with drugs. He and his wife let her stay in his house. And like, in order to save face with her lawyer dad over something that happened, she accused him of sexually assaulting her, of raping her. Destroyed his military career when he and his wife were willing to take this girl into their house and care for her. It destroyed his life in a lot of ways, right? And he faced the suffering of it. He did what he could, and he lives like as well as he can today, but he never has been vindicated. We all, on some level, long for vindication. Sometimes it's really fleshly. You just want your wife, your wife or your husband to admit that they're wrong, or your roommate to just do the dishes. Like, you just like, you want justice to happen, and it's not happening. And friends, it's not gonna happen. It's not going to happen because the wheat and the tares are growing together and God's going to sort it out in the end because all of us must come to redemption of our will through his gracious invitation. And so he, he's going to let a lot of this play out because whether or not we give each other justice, whether or not we believe each other, whether or not we receive each other graciously, even when those people seem to have failed, even maybe they didn't, but they seem to, we still receive them. That's a test for all of us. It reveals who we are and who we choose to be. And that's all that God is trying to do right now, except for the million other things. And so, Paul realizes that there is a vindication that he is living for, that he is hoping in, and that he believes, beyond a shadow of doubt, is going to happen. And you see, if you don't believe that, then you can't actually take the risk to do the good when you know you're going to be the sufferer of an injustice because you took the position of an unprivileged servant to do the good. Because some selfishly ambitious, vainly conceited person who cares nothing for concord and isn't trying to be like Jesus is going to stick it to you in that moment of weakness because you're going to have an open flank that comes from courageously doing the right thing. And that's going to happen. And you might be like, well, God's going to protect me. He might protect you. He might not protect you. Because suffering can be a gift, and it might be what you need, and also, saving us from suffering is not God's main interest. I mean, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. He says, listen, no matter what I suffer in this life, it's but a light and momentary trial. In comparison to the glory that will be revealed. Yes, the suffering that you're suffering, if it's particularly terrible, is particularly terrible. But in comparison— Right? So compared to your neighbor, it might be terrible. But in comparison to the glory that's going to be revealed everlastingly, it's not really that big a deal. And you see, God can see both the relationship between you and your neighbor and also the relationship with you and the eternity that he's promised. And he knows that you can know that relative to your neighbor, it's a big deal. And relative to the eternal glory that he has offered, it is nothing. Especially because... Suffering is one of the most productive realities if combined with faith to godliness, which is the greatest gift and is great gain and is good for everything, the apostle says in 1 Timothy. But your desire for that is ineradicable. The, the desire that your life would have a boast is right. 
Okay, I have to move on because there's only a couple minutes left. This is going to be really short. He says very clearly that there is joy. There is a joy that has a perfect equity. That is, that there's a joy that everybody has access to. It doesn't matter your education, how much money you have. There is a joy that is for you, which is the joy we take in each other's faith and perseverance, right? He says, my boast is in your sacrifice and service, your faith, the sacrifice before God that we are together, which I'll get to in just a minute. Everybody has access to that. Doesn't matter what your economic class is. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how tall you are. Doesn't matter how young or old you are. There's nothing that blocks your access to the greatest joy of the boast of life and that the joy that we can take in together. I want to say one more thing about this. Notice here he doesn't say joy. He says rejoice, right, and be glad. Why does he say that? <clears throat> he, he says that because he knew that there would someday in Wisconsin be a church of primarily Northern Europeans who had emotional problems with expressing themselves. I'm just kidding. That's not, one, not the main reason. But, but you, do, you, do you see the, that here? He's talking about expressing it. He's like, be glad and rejoice. Joy is assumed, okay? It's assumed. He's saying, be happy and show it vibrantly. So I need to end the sermon so we can try to do that with singing. Okay, let me say this last thing, which is this, that his boast is in how his redemption, the meaning of his life, the boast of his future, and the joy of his heart is bound up in them, in them with each other in Christ. Right? And he uses this metaphor where he says, listen, this is my boast on the day of Christ. I didn't labor for nothing. He says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Here's what he's saying. In the Old Testament, there were daily sacrifices of worship offered to God in devotion and love in which three different things were put together into a single sacrifice. So they would have like a lamb that they would slaughter and prepare for sacrifice, and then they put it on the altar, and then there was a certain amount of grain that they would pour around the offering and then there was a certain amount of wine that as it was burning, they would pour over the offering and it would steam up to heaven, right? And it was the drink offering and it was wine, right? And what would happen is, is that the drink offering would be gone almost in a moment. But just like, you know, when like you do cooking, you do like a wine reduction, like you cook off all the alcohol and all the, but you get this like kind of syrupy thing that you use as like a whatever, right? What would happen in the sacrifice is all the water of the wine would burn away, but the substance of the wine, the blood of the thing, would cling and still and stay part of the offering as it would burn for hours. So you see the metaphor? Paul says in chapter one, he's like, look, they might let me go to come for your joy and progress in the faith, but they might kill me. And to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he said, so, worst case scenario, imagine the daily offering where the wine gets poured on the lamb and the grain. And the wine, it's like it's gone right away. But it's there. It's, it's caked on. It's syrupy in the, in the hair of the thing. And, it, uh, and it's always part of the sacrifice that will burn for hours and hours and hours. Right? And he said, and I'm the drink offering, and you're the sacrifice. Do you see what he's saying? If they kill me, in particular, his blood is poured out. Tradition says that Paul was beheaded, so like a lot of literal blood pouring out. Okay, it's not, a, not really a metaphor, kind of. <clears throat> you see, he's saying that's, that's the thing that brought him joy. The relationship that he had with the Philippians, nobody could take away. No Roman centurion could cut off his head and end his boast. 
They chopped off his head. His blood pouring out was just like wine being poured over a burning offering. And the two were forever connected with each other as worship to God. Just like Paul could never be separated from the Philippians. Just like we're supposed to never be able to be separated from each other. Do you see the metaphor here? That I mean, look around you at the ridiculous people sitting close to you. Like, look at us all. We're all, we've got problems. We don't have fashion. Like, we're getting older. Like, the young people can be silly sometimes. The old people can be curmudgeon. Like, like we've got all kinds of issues. You know, like, and these people around you are being made into everlasting glories. I mean, think about this. You think, you think you're not ambitious? Like, you're like, well, I'm humble. I'm not ambitious. You don't think you're ambitious? In faith, you are seeking to live forever, to be justified morally before the living God, to be healed from everything that has ailed humanity since the beginning of the curse, to be vindicated over every enemy that ever oppressed you, and to be glorified everlastingly in relationship to the God of all glory for eternal pleasure and interest in Him relationally, knowing God personally as a friend forever. Don't tell me you're not ambitious. There's never been—I mean, it it makes Elon Musk look like he's just like, you know, playing with some toothpicks, you know? (laughs) Whatever, right? I mean, going to Mars, whatever. Putting microchips in your brain to talk without words, whatever. Buying Twitter and cleaning it up to be a decent place, okay, that's serious business, okay? But still, like, it's still not a big deal compared to the ambition of coming to God and asking for everything he's offered and believing it's not too good to be true, that it's real and that you can believe in the goodness of the hidden God because he has spoken and shown himself in the one willing to empty himself because God himself believed that emptying himself was the root to the demonstration of the glory he already possessed and the greatest invitation for our imitation of that gloriousness so that together we can become a sacrifice that is bound together in the fires of suffering, that even if if something happens to me, I'm just a drink offering poured out on the service and sacrifice of your faith, forever bound together before God. You and I are our boasts. Those people around you, those children in the youth group, everybody you see and know here, the people who are our neighbors, they are our boasts. We are our boasts. It's not your singing of worship. It's us. It's the people. It's the immortal beings around you. It's their lives their pains, their hopes, their loneliness, and us being there and caring and doing something, that is our boast. Because God himself emptied himself, became nothing, became obedient to the death of the cross so that he could be glorified, refilled to the highest place and have the name that is above every day, to have the greatest boast there could possibly be and to give us an opportunity to boast in a final vindication that he gives us. Believe. Believe today. Believe now. Believe this. And let the courage come into you necessary to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd help us as people to believe the truth, to be able to see what is unseen and yet spoken and shown through Christ, to believe in the work of your Spirit now, that these words are not dead, ancient words in a book of a great martyr, but they exist among us because of the presence of your Holy Spirit at this moment, 
bringing redemption to us and working in us. Help us as we sing these songs and as we reflect and as we think to be changed by these truths, to rise in courage and to carry a future hope of a real boast on the day of Christ in our hearts and help it to change how we treat people around us so that we enjoy them. In Jesus' name, amen.